0: Thank you, Ben. Good morning. Good morning. They asked me up there if I was quiet, because I was quiet up there, because I'm really nervous, but I'm not quiet, and we'll see how that waxes and wanes. But it's a privilege to be here. I was thinking, talking to my wife back here, that we've been in this building a long time, over the years, over 20 years, and you feel a sense of being comfortable and belonging at some level. Well, it, uh, nonetheless, I feel nervous. I hardly ever preach. You'd think that's surprising, but I rarely do, and I have so much I want to share, and I always have too much content. That's certainly the case this morning. Um, if you could put up that first slide. It's Kenny, right? I think it's there. Okay, great. So, I um, wanted well, to start by thanking you and saying we serve kids, we develop leaders, and we build community. That's basically what Urban Promise does. But I'm not here really to talk to you about Urban Promise. I'm gonna mention a couple things about Urban Promise because they're central to my testimony and my experience of God and what I want you to know and and experience uh, in the Word today. But um, it's really important work that we do because some of the most vulnerable people in America uh, are engaged in our programs and they are children of God like your children and they're families of God like your families and they're bodies of Christ in the city like this one here. And we'll talk a little bit about some of those things. But your church has been as strong as any church as a supporting church for Urban Promise. And you have more reasons than any other church not to be. It takes you 45 minutes to an hour to get to Wilmington. You live in a comfortable place called Southern Chester County, and you have no real connection to that place and those families. And yet you have made it your walk to journey with us and partner with us and impact us and share the love of Christ and receive the love of Christ as much as any church that we partner with. And I'm grateful for that. It's encouraging, and it's a witness to the love of Christ. All these worship songs, we'll talk about that, they're important. But if they lack breath, they're empty words. What brings breath into the words? What brings breath into the Word of God? What makes manifestation of the power of the resurrection in this church, in this body, in your home, in your workplace, in your community, it's the way you will pick up that cross, and lay it down, and die unto self, and experience the power of the resurrection manifested in your life, and you say, "Thank God, this is real life." And, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. And it's urgent. A time such as this, we are in a unique place in time and history. So you guys have been spectacular. Yeah, I don't want to lose sight of that, and. What's the, oh, they told me there's a, there's a screen somewhere. <laughs> oh, it's up here. And uh, get to the next slide with your youth group out here. Oops, let's pass on to the next slide. There we go. You might recognize some of these guys. I don't know. But uh, your group, your church has been real faithful to bring down work groups, whether it's the youth group, Christian. I know Christian had us out, come out after the banquet to speak to his youth group, which I really appreciated. Had sort of an interesting, miraculous thing there happen. I don't know if anybody heard about that. I won't share it today. But somebody in your church... Who knew the woman who shared at our banquet, and the power and the transcendence of God to work in all realms of time and space was pretty extraordinary. So I'm thankful for these young people what they experience. And uh, by the way, I want at the end I'll talk about it. like how can you get connected? Like what good is it if we talk and nothing happens when we go out of here for any of us, whether it's an urban promise or some other organization or in your household? Uh, next slide, Kenny. Uh, this is Paddle for promise team, or much of them. That's Laura and Mike in the middle who help organize a lot of that. Laura's on our board, and uh, Mike is a stalwart in a lot of our programs. I'll mention that a little bit. Uh, really thankful for them. Talented, gift to people. Really impacted our ministry in a lot of ways. But you guys are the leading church on Paddle for Promise. This is a fundraiser for our job training program, for our high school teens that work with us. they are the largest year-round employer of high school teens in the city of Wilmington. Very important time to give kids a job and, enter and, and, and integrate them into faith in what we're doing. And this funds that. But you also have um, Eric's out there somewhere. Josh has been one of our... Um, uh, uh, ship captains, we have to have uh, chase boats and so forth, there's a couple of doctors out here, the Roonies, who have done, been our medical team on this event, so it's a big event, and there's a, if you've ever done it, there's a sense like, ah, oh, that was good, in fact, it'll come up in a way, this is what we're talking about today, will directly impact uh, or reflect what happens in the for Promise, but just to say, wow, what an amazing group of people here. Next slide, I think, is Mike Wooden, there on the right with a snowboard. And the irony is, when I come back and tell you about this story, he, he went skiing last weekend, I couldn't go. I had to move my daughter, which you'll also hear about. And um, is there a clock in here, by the way? I have to go by my my, my watch. I'm trying to be moderately faithful to the time. And um, I I guarantee you it'll be a full 45 minutes. And I don't want to make the people taking care of the kids come out here in a riot and send the kids back in as a mob uh, to take me off the stage. But I want to share what's burning in my bones. but it's interesting because I'm not sure Mike ever put the snowboard on. Has anybody here actually seen Mike's snowboard? Maybe it's all a ruse. He can't actually snowboard. And it's just like a prop. I don't know. But the reason was because he spent the whole day with one child who I think at the end of the day made one run, quote unquote, down the bunny slope. Now, on the one hand, if you like to ski, that is the most miserable thing in life is to hold your snowboard all day on the bunny slope. But it is the most profound and subtle act of picking up a cross and laying your life down so someone else will have full life. And we want more of that. We want each person here to live that and breathe that and manifest that and express that with confidence and humility and power in the culture. It's easy for me to get off tack, I know that. (laughs) Okay, who the heck am I, by the way? That's the next slide up there. Um, The best thing about me is the woman in the orange hat. Amen. So, uh, just real quick, so you know, like, well, who the heck is this guy talking to? Some of you might know me, most of you wouldn't. And grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, family's been there 150 years. Uh, UD grad, are there any blue hens out here? Yeah, glad to hear that. And um, so, I'm I'm an organic chemist by training. And I love organic chemistry. I spent 20 years in the chemical industry, and I was outstanding at it. And I'm not trying to be, you know, like, this is just an objective statement. So I worked in a, in a Fortune 500 company. I was one of the anointed few in a company of 20,000 who had been selected to be potentially a CEO someday. And they put you in these special track programs. And I was in that program, and I killed it. And I loved it. And I miss it to this day. Did that for 20 years. Uh, and I was a you know, global expert in my field, highly esteemed and sought it Blind and died in all the best five star resorts around the world, and I loved it. Uh, and eventually, God intervened in my life and said, so like, You know, I really want you to do this thing at Wilmington. And I'm like, Oh, geez, I really don't want to do this. There's a bit of a journey in that. I won't go into any of that. But I'm like, Oh, kind of very grudgingly, which is my life story is pretty grudging. And uh, like ultimately, I'm faithful, but I don't have a willing heart. I'm very much like, uh, like, um, guy shoving a blanket on the, the prophet who goes in the whale Jonah, <laughs> uh, and um, so anyway, I left that work to start Urban Promise in Wilmington, and we've done that. This this summer will be our twenty-fifth year, um, and it's a very interesting journey. So I've had I've had as much success, six-figure salary, every upper mobility opportunity, comfortable life, power, esteem, everything that you could want in in the contextual the secular world. And all that's good. Anybody here, you do not have to become an urban missionary to manifest the power of Christ. In fact, it would be far more effective if all of you were manifesting exactly where you live and breathe today. In your job, in the hospital where you work, in the school where you teach, wherever it is, in the, in the place where you're spreading mulch in a landscaping business. Um, but I, you know, like, so I, I, I love business, and it's a great place to manifest. You don't have to be, but on the other hand, it was one journey, one season, and I've had a totally different one In contrast. It's a really interesting gift from God, not completely sought, but very valuable. By the way, real quick on these folk here, my daughter on the right is a doctor. My girl there in the middle is a master's of fine art working in her field and a gifted artist. My son is a PhD in material science engineering. My wife's a nurse. Uh, All three of those young people are practicing their faith dynamically in their church with leadership and engagement. That's the most important transcendent eternal outcome of us raising kids. Most of that was God's grace I think I would argue, I did a lot of things right as a father, I did a lot of things wrong as a father, and as a husband, and the gap between what I did, and what God did, is his grace, and I am grateful for that, um, and I, it's fun to enjoy it, this is a picture of my backyard, by the way, and, um, it's not really, but we climbed 4,000 feet to get there, so I'm really proud of this picture, <laughs> keep wondering, you're like, can I climb that gun? it's not in California's picture. I'm going to tell you a quick story. Um, the reason I couldn't uh, see this week, or, yeah, is um, my daughter was moving. She lives, uh, she works in, a, in our conservation center in west, northwestern Massachusetts, very rural, and she's moved from Williamstown to North Adams, extremely secular part of our country. Uh, lots of churches that are now community centers, not many churches that have any kind of life whatsoever. And as an aside, and you'll hear me say this again, one of my messages today is the church is imploding everywhere. Even the healthiest churches, to my way of thinking, my experience, do not have a bright future. This church is at a critical moment. I'm just a guest. You own the community of this church and God's calling for it. And you have a new pastor you're excited about. And praise God for that. And there were faithful people and faithful community members who sought and affirmed this individual. And I look forward to how that's going to affect this church. But I'm not really speaking to this church, and I don't know it well enough to say, but I can tell you generically, church has stage three cancer, and nobody will say it. And we don't want to get the bad news and we just want to live it out and not address it. And getting that treated is going to be painful. So, that's an aside. And one way to look at that metric, by the way, and I'm jumping ahead, I know I am, is what is the demographic in this church right now, particularly in terms of age? How many people between 15 and 35 are sitting in these pews, and does it represent, uh, statistically, the appropriate demographic mix for this church based upon the community? I don't see it. I could be wrong, but I don't see it. So that's just a brutal metric. Data matters. Data is simply an objective fact, and how you interpret it matters, how you collect it matters. But I'm an old scientist, and I'm all about the power of resurrection, and God being love. But also, there's objective data, and we'll look at that. That's a revelation, and we have to look at that. How many of your young people who graduate this church, I was talking to a woman whose husband is a youth pastor in a PCA church, great church, dynamic people, a lot of 60-year-olds who love God, all of them depressed and discouraged and sad because their 25-year-old children do not follow God and do not attend church. That's a metric. That's data. That's a revelation. And we have to—you as a body—have to look at that. You don't have to change it tomorrow. You don't have to change it in 10 years. But over the next hundred years, Jesus Christ is an urgent gospel message, and we need to make—we need to repent. We cannot, by the way, be in God's room if we don't. Re- so God is in the room when we repent. That's like a not very popular message. But we'll come and see why that matters. At the end of the day, this message is about rest. So... Um, I, the, two of these people are completely secular. Excuse me. One's a, here it is. Time for that water. Thank you, Ben. I was <laughs> uh, holy water. I could use the help. Speaking of holy, I was so nervous. I'm like, I do that all the time. We're going to pray real quick. Father God... Even now, like, what a jerk. Get up here. Don't start praying. Like, all I'm going to do is my own. I am not going to do this on my own strength. And I thank you for what you've done in my life, all the grace you've given me, all the love I've experienced um, from generational family blessings churches like this, Father God, I am grateful to you and I want to serve and honor you and I'm going to mess up and I'm going to sin, I'm going to make mistakes and I'll need your grace today and tomorrow and every day, but I have it, Jesus, because you died for me and I thank you. And You died for the people in this room and we thank you. And we, we, In our gratitude, we are com- convicted and compelled to serve you and to do it with joy and power and full life and I pray that out of the words today and out of the new direction in this church that you will move in that to the blessing of these people and individuals and and collectively as a community in Christ. So be with the message today. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Um, And Okay, so it's story. Um, We are, um, will that leak if I put it down? We'll see. Moving my daughter, a lot of stuff. Don't know how this girl got so much stuff in this little apartment, moving to another little apartment with a lot of stuff. Amen, Monica? She didn't say nothing because she's quiet, but she's saying it, And we worked like crazy, packing up, all got up early in the morning. These people showed up. We had vans. We had trucks. We had all our minivans. Uh, and, and we had sort of a timeline because this team of people is only available at a certain time. Two su- entirely secular people, a pastor up in the upper right-hand corner, my daughter's pastor, my two daughters and, me, and, this guy, and my wife, Simeon, whose father is a pastor, very interesting mix of people uh, who works with Brooke in, in the art conservation field. And uh we did all this work and then we went back for the second load and we took a pizza break and i'm telling you this story because um these are parables they're true but they're parables and within every one of these stories is massive amounts of data and information and revelation and i think you'll remember some of those but you've had these every story i tell you've had these there's nothing unique or new in my testimony my witness it's just singular to my experience so um, we all gather around. I, I say grace. I, knew, I thought Brooke might be uncomfortable because in this section of the country, like I tell you, uh, one, of her, one of the elders in her church was threatened by their nanny. He's a professor at Williams College, was threatened by the nanny for child abuse because they were inculcating Bible study in their children at home. And he literally was like, you know, he, was, he had to deal with a child. But he was worried about her calling Child Protective Services. Him and his wife were really scared about that. Would they lose the child? It sounds like madness, but it's real. Now, I'm not here to, to bash progressives or to bash conservatives or to be Republican or Democrat. Those are all just, you know, a, a, a sowing of the wind and reaping the whirlwind. But these are the currents that a convicted, compelling, authentic Powerful, attractive, humble faith are meant to bring life to, are meant to give drink to. So we prayed, and I deliberately prayed, like, you know, we're for the food, but like, I want them to know that I, we're grateful for them, and God loves them, and they're, they're children of God. And then we're tracking, and the, the 68-year-old woman here with the red beret on uh, hired Brooke into the conservation center, and then retired a year later and has mentored her since. And uh, she mentioned that her father died when she was 13. And I was intrigued by that. So my, my wife's da- uh, father dropped dead at her feet of a massive cardiac arrest when she was 9 years old, playing outside. He z ran up from jogging, gasping for breath, saying, go to the ambulance. And she didn't really understand what he was saying or doing. And from 9 to 19, my wife's life was full of trauma, Had totally changed the vessel that God had, if in a sinless world, intended her to be. We're going to talk about trauma and sin and its effects on our lives. There ain't nobody here who hasn't experienced all these things. They're all different for each person. We're all these clay jars. We'll mention that. And so I said, Well, gee, you know, Leslie, would you share? Because my wife had a similar experience. How did it impact you? And, uh, you know, would you share that experience? And she did. You know, if she was nervous but she started to talk about her father dying in a car accident and her her mother basically went off the deep end and and went out of the picture entirely. The older sister really lost contact with everybody and her, the 13 year old became the mother to raise the younger kids. And she said, you know, it really changed my life. It made me really good at my job, which she was really excellent at. She said, I'm not sure it was the best thing for me overall, but it made me good at my job. We're going to look at that in detail when we talk about Joseph this morning. But she welled up in tears, got choked up in her voice after she shared for like 15 or 20 minutes. And then she said, I just feel so embarrassed. I just talked about myself the whole time. I'm really sorry. And I said, no, you have blessed us with the truth With transparency. You shared in your vulnerability a fundamental human dignity truth that we can all relate to, and we need to understand that we've all walked these journeys and we can carry this together. And it does wound us, but it also shapes us. And what was intended for evil does not have to be lost without redemption. We'll come back to that. And the common denominator was you know, like we all were there because we loved Brooke, but she shared this story. And I just said, You have just bound us together in a more abundant way than if you hadn't shared that. That is, a, that, is a, that is an example. It is like an experiment with an outcome. So we finished the afternoon, we were crazy. Simeon had to go, but he stayed long. We finished the thing, and we got everything upstairs unpacked and all that kind of stuff. Everybody stayed extra time, completed the task. And then that night around 10 o'clock when we were done, my, my two daughters and Monica and I just sat completely exhausted. You know that stage where you're so tired you can't get up to go to bed. You're like, that's too painful. I just want to sit here. And we talked about how we had this incredible sense of rest. Because we had completed a critical task in the time that was appropriate. But more importantly, we had done it with a body of people. And there had been a transcendent, beautiful outpouring of that abundance. We had developed in a, an intimacy in a community in just eight hours. That we felt this sense of joy and fulfillment and abundance and full life and rest and completion and beauty and enthusiasm as exhausted and worn out as we were. And so I'm not opposed to balance and boundaries and self care, but those are idols. And we worship them in the culture increasingly. We'll come back and look at that. What a vain hope. So it's appropriate. For a million reasons. Jesus does it. See, different people do it. So I'm not having it. Let's all go burn out. But the illusion that there is rest in those things without a foundation, it's a house built on sand. So we'll come back there. What's the next slide? Hmm. Not gonna read all these enormous array of things in scripture. I just picked a few. Really interesting different kinds of rest. One example would be when David The child he bears with Bathsheba who dies and is cursed after Nathan confronts him. Very famous passage where David is distraught and all of his servants are so concerned and then the child dies and they whisper, like, we can't tell him, what will he do? And he's been in sackcloth and ashes and he hears them whispering. He says, is the child dead? Yes, the child's dead. He gets up. He goes, he bathes, puts on a fresh set of clothes. He sits down has a meal. And they're like, what, what's up with that? Like, now the child's dead. Why aren't you more distraught? Profa- he, and he has a famous quote. I will go to him, but he will not come to me. Embedded in that is a profound sense of truth and revelation. And David had rest in that. We can have rest in the crazy. Rest is not like, oh, I'm chilling. Oh, life is easy. Two other examples. If I perish, I perish. Esther. Mordecai says, you've got to go and save the people. No, I'm not doing that, Mordecai. could be a little risky. And he says, I don't think you're going to escape. She thinks myself, all right, everybody pray and fast. I'll do the same, and then I'll go to the king, which probably means my certain death. But I don't care anymore because I have rest because I know God's will, and I know I'm convicted to do it. And if I perish, I perish. That's a quote. If I perish, I perish. That's rest. Strangest one you might think of. Jesus in Gethsemane. Father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Three times. And from the point at which he says, all right, I've solicited, I've asked, I've talked to the Father, can you take this cup from me? Is there some other way? And he arrives at the conclusion there's not. He understands, Like, okay, yes, this is God's will. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, incarnated as man, which makes him know what we know, feel what we feel, walk where we've walked, seen the pain and suffering, watched trauma, experienced trauma. It's so extraordinary. And the gospel message that we have and can share is extraordinary. And from the point at which he says, the time has come. Until the last thing he says on the cross, you see rest. He doesn't argue. He doesn't complain. He's not fearful. He's nothing but bold, courageous, committed, resolved. And he sets his face to the task and the will that he's going to follow. That's rest. The ultimate rest. Anyway, um, next slide. We'll come back and look. some. Uh, and um, okay, I think we're going to start diving in there. And let me do one thing real quick, make sure, yeah. So, the title of the sermon today, maybe that's on the next slide, is it? Probably not. No, that's a yoke. Go back. We'll get there soon enough. Uh, This is really not that important, but the title of the sermon is Apocalypse Rest. Apocalypse Rest. It's not meant to be dramatic, it simply is dramatic. There's never been a period in recent history, 50 years anyway, possibly really much, much longer, that the English interpretation of apocalypse seems more relevant. Apocalypse, whoa, world's coming to an end, zombies. Whatever it may be, it's like, oh, it's a serious thing. But the book of Revelation is called that because it is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Those are the first, really, three words, but Allah is not really in the Greek piece. It's apocalypse, Jesus Christ the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I'm interested in revelation today, not the book, but the experience and the reality and uh, its relationship to rest. So um, we're going to read these passages. I'm going to lay out some scripture, and then we're going to bring that back and connect it to things in people's lives that I think will make sense to you in some respects. Um, And I do want to say two things about apocalypse and what we want to do. Uh, it, it, this is just reading off a strong Greek numbers. Anybody can look it up online. Um, probably means to uncover, revealing what is hidden, especially its inner makeup, to make plain, to manifest, particularly what is immaterial. So when God manifests his truth, when he reveals his truth, when he takes these deep inner things, and they become more and more concrete and we grasp them more and more and they're more and more relevant and practicable in what we do in our lives, that's revelation. That's apocalypse. And we are desperate for apocalypse at the current time in history. And that's a great thing. And it's an incredible opportunity. But we don't want to let it pass us by. You only wanna say, what's the application for rest in the world? We're gonna look at rest in Genesis and I, ultimately, rest is our ultimate goal. And I'll explain that. Uh, rest is only achieved by walking in God's will. It's the vector of righteousness in love. I don't know if there's any engineers here. I'm not going to go into that. But it, a vector is magnitude and direction. And when we walk in God's will, we are walking, we are being obedient, and we're going to fulfill his plan and purpose for us. And when we do that, we have rest. Esther had it. David in his repentance had it. Jesus had it in the garden. They were walking in God's will, and they had rest, despite what they faced and what was taking place. Jonah has it, interestingly, in the belly before he spit out. He repents before he knows he'll be spit out. He finds rest in the belly. Very common. And so if we want real rest, not self-care rest, but real rest, we'll have to pick up a cross. We'll look at that real quick here. So um, I'm going to read... Genesis first, And this is where rest first comes to us. God saw that all he had made, Genesis 1.31, that all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work and god blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done this is the first reference to rest this is the rest we're all seeking this was the rest that god carries and, and uh, existentially carries with him is him and it was completed in perfect creation with everything the way it was supposed to be and he has rest how can god have rest part of it could be his message to us, but it's a fascinating, it's the manifestation, what is God like? And we're made in his image, so how should we walk and be? And this is the rest that we're going to come back to say this is what we want. But he did six days of creation. It was a lot of work. And it isn't less like, like oh, he was exhausted physically or emotionally. It was the concept that he had a will that he intended to achieve. And when he achieved it, he had rest. And so he has a will for us. And when we follow in it, when we achieve it, We will have rest. When we finished the task of moving my daughter, we had this crazy rest. We were touched by the testimony shared by this woman. We were touched by the love and the work shown to our daughter. The common ingredient was that they all loved my daughter. We all did. There was a bond of intimacy that came in that. There was a task. There was hard work. There was faithfulness in that. There was obedience in that. There was sacrifice in that. And there was completion when we were done. And it's the simplest thing, and yet tangibly I could say, I know what this rest feels like. I can experience the rest of God at the seventh day that He, that he ordains into the Ten Commandments as the Sabbath. So, the most famous passage, I think, in the New Testament I rest, I don't, I'm not very good with it, this kind of technology. Let's see what happens if it keeps falling down here. Is Matthew 11. I'll be a little bit sarcastic here, but. And I will give you rest. You will find rest for your soul. I am gentle and humble in heart. I am the Jesus that we all want to feel his love and encouragement and grace. And Jesus began, this is the preceding, literally, a preceding section before that verse. Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were made for because they did not repent. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You You will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you that's the Jesus Christ who's about to tell you I want to invite you to rest the ferocity of God's holiness and righteousness and his intention that we would walk in his will and fulfill his plan and restore what was lost and have rest and completion is terrifying as you encounter it I bet many of you encountered that at some level you No, know, I made a kid cry I don't know if that's good or bad but God bless the child I appreciate having you there and then he says, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. This day and age, by the way, very common for Christians to hide because the culture condemns them so strongly. And we've earned it. We've seated and we've been arrogant, and we've been foolish, and we've been irrelevant. So there's an element like, I don't blame the culture. We own the truth, so let's walk in the truth. But at the same time, the culture is not going to be friendly to us, by and large. And, you know, the sense like, oh, science, we've got to be afraid of science. I'm a scientist. I love science. There's nothing science can do that isn't going to be a revelation for God. It could be off. It could be misunderstood. It could be incomplete. But I can embrace science because it's going it's to manifest truth. But scientists are sinners like you and me. Confirmation bias, what they're thinking. My grandfather said figures don't lie, but liars figure. But all those things... Um, you know what I'm a little child fundamentally a lot of times I think I'm smart well look at that I think I'm smart I think okay like and I've been smacked down so many times I'm an arrogant foolish man really am I was the youngest kid I was spoiled my brother and sister would all tell you that uh, my wife would tell you that and uh, at the same time like well that's my broken vessel that's the, this vessel I became that's the jar of clay that I am I'll mention that and uh and and so many elements of trauma and sin these things that shaped me that I didn't control and now a lot that I do control and to be hopeless and despairing but I have Jesus Christ in his blood and his grace, and his word, and his body. And so I have life and hope and a future. Oh, it's good. It's really good. But at the honestly, we're just little children. And when we start to think we're something, intelligent, and the culture thinks it's so smart. Science is the answer. We'll look at that in a second. Like, is it really? All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses, apocalypse him. And our translation is to reveal him. This is the first place I want to talk about apocalypse. Those to whom the Son chooses to apocalypto him. The Greek word is the apocalypse. Same one as in Revelation. So, the revelation of Jesus Christ to those whom he chooses. Now this is a Presbyterian church. I think it's a it's Presbyterian church. And uh, so everything's ordained. We can just move on. There's no complexity to that statement. Psych uh, not. I grew up a Methodist. That's an Arminian. And uh, this is a complex passage. We won't go into that. But how does Jesus choose to reveal? And I walked that journey, to be honest. I've had so much revelation of Jesus Christ in my life, and it has not made me one bit more righteous or holy or anything than anybody in here, really ill righteousness. But, oh my gosh, the conviction of faith, and the, the enthusiasm of that, and the drive it creates for truth, and light, and hope, and power, and justice, and restoration. It's insatiable. It is a well of living water. And so how in the world, why in the world would Jesus reveal this to me? And all of you had experiences like this. So, but I've had a special one for sure, and that's all I'm sharing on. But I think all of us want more of this. So here's the, the guts of this passage. Come to me And I'm going to break this down all the way through. Let me read it real quick, and we'll come back and break it down. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've never really liked this passage because I never feel it. Like, his yoke is not easy and his burden isn't light. But I don't get it, not feeling that. It's frustrating, because it never feels like that. And I have to say, uh, a lot of things that have happened in my life lately, and, and precipitating happened to, to preacher. preacher. Thank you for inviting me. What a gift. Uh, I should pay you to do it, because it's like, it's like therapy for me. You know, I finally get to share all these things in my heart. And, um, but the, uh, what was it? No, they've distracted. that. Oh, yoke isn't easy. It doesn't feel easy to me. And for the first time in my life, like, oh, I get it. Huh. I think I get it. And I want to share that with you in part. First of all, come to me. I'm not coming to you. That was a passage where he talks about, does that. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to give you my rest. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to show you my love. Come to me. It's imperative. You come to me. That's a charge. If we want rest, we have to follow the vector of his righteousness in love, to follow on the path of his will. All you who are weary and burdened. Um, huh. Which person in here isn't weary and burdened? Some may be in a season of rest, or restoration, or recovery, and others are just going into the worst pit they can imagine right now, and everything in between. So, Praise God when we're in seasons of rest. We can't endure unending suffering. And sometimes it's our own sin. We'll come and look at that. And sometimes it's Job. He didn't sin. But God said, we're going to test you. But um, weary and burden. There's two things about weary and burden. Weary is toiling to the place of exhaustion. Not where, like, I felt good. I got it done. Like, I'm worn out. I can't do anymore. I keep doing, I hate this job. I go every day. i got to feed my family. But it's just toil. There's no joy. There's no fulfillment. There's no pleasure. It could be that's how your marriage feels. It could be how the relationship between you and your children or your mother and father feels. We are weary. We've toiled. There's a difference between toiling for what doesn't last and toiling for what's eternal, laboring for it. The second thing is, and burdened. And by I'm going to press into the Greek and all these things because it's really important to go into the original language because it's different. You just can't translate these things. I happen to be fluent in Portuguese, and it's really helpful in doing this because you're like, yeah, you realize like that. Some languages, they just don't line up entirely. So It's important. If this is the Word of God, I want to understand as fully as possible. You've got to look at it. doesn't mean I'm an expert. doesn't mean like, oh, this interpretation is right, but I think it will be revelatory at some level. Burden is overburdened, overloaded. The straw that broke the camel's back, too much. If I have a 2,000-ton truck and I put 4,000 tons in it, it's overburdened. It's going to break. It wasn't built for 2,000 tons. Your back, your heart, your mind, your will, your stamina. It's different for everybody here. If you're born and raised in a healthy environment and you can carry a lot of burden, praise God. On the other hand, like you got to carry a lot of burden. Nothing's too great for us that he hasn't ordained for. it. On the other hand, you grew up in an abusive situation with very little love, thirsty all your life, and you're wounded and broken and your vessel was really, really misshapen when it was wet clay as young, and you've never gotten a break in life. Your burden, you can't carry as much, and you have nothing to do with it at some level. So that's the kind of, you know, when you just say weary and burdened, it sounds like, oh yeah, you know, kind of, you had a bad day, you're worn out. This is profoundly, existentially despairing, unsustainable. By the way, and this defines the culture, I can't resist in a way, Jump ahead a few slides here. Can you show the slide of the word trauma? Ah, it's too far. Maybe I took it out. Go back one. I'll tell you. He took out a piece, and I won't show it to you because I don't. I, I, uh, God bless Christian, by the way. He should have the week off. He had to work with me on getting the slides and everything else. Like, oh, he's a patient, grace filled man. Praise the Lord for Christian. And, um,. You can actually go back to the picture of the yoke at this point. Um, and trauma is literally the Greek word for wound. And when you look at, we always like to look at the etymology of words. It's important for a variety of reasons. Kind like, Oh, what's the original ten of that? And uh, trauma, uh, usually there's a lot of like, and then it became, you know, old English, and then old French, and you know, medieval this, and then finally it's English this. Trauma is just, it was a wound in Greek, and then it became trauma in English. And there was no intermediate things. It's very direct correlation, very direct rooting to the word wound. And it makes a lot of sense to think of it that way. And, uh, you know, Google has this lovely thing where they can show you the use of the word in the culture in books, and they assimilate it. Now, you'll see a lot of curves in Google on the use of a word. It goes up, and then it sort of levels off, and it goes down. There's a lot more books than it used to be, so just inherently, when you look at the date, it's going to be more. I've never seen a curve like the one on trauma. It is asymptotic. Oh, love to use that word in a sermon. Oh, asymptotic. Feels good. Any scientists out there, you're feeling good. I hope you're feeling preached on that. Asymptotic. Um, it's like, it's gonna, it goes up. It's not a hockey stick. It seems steep in hockey. Stick. It goes up. gets up. It's like, whoa! That's the use of the word trauma. And I wish I had... Oh, there it is. Damn, it's up there. That's an asymptotic curve. The lower ones are not so much, but that red one is. And that's the small t trauma. And it's very interesting. You look at the, the timeline on this. This... So parallels our investment in science and secularism. It so parallels the death of the church and Christianity. Just really like, wow, that curve is a remarkable correlation to those other events. Is that an accident? Unlikely. Haven't probed it, but like, oh, that was really interesting and revelatory. That is an apocalypse. But the reason I drew the curve now, or to draw it up now, is because. Um, suicide between 2000 and 2020 is up 30 percent you know if murders are up 30 percent you know it's like wow which they probably are actually but suicide between 10 and 25 year olds is up 60 percent do we have more rest as a culture do we have more peace more fulfillment more carrying of burdens, more intimacy, more love, more hope. That suicide curve, this trauma curve, are simply metrics that reflect what's happening, happening in our lives. We don't have rest. We are heavily burdened, and we don't really know what to do about it. But we do. That's a hopeful thing. And by the way, interesting thing is trauma-informed cameras all the rage. We probably have some psychiatrists in here. I'm all in favor of it. It's very important. It's a useful tool. It's a development of science. And what you see, interestingly, is science trying to develop the knowledge that's already in the Word of God. This is the greatest hack in history. And no amount of science, infinitely for the future, will ever be sufficient to deal with the robust challenges and problems of human beings. Science is a single variable, maybe a double variable, double-blind experiments, various You cannot comprehend the complexity of the human heart and emotions and yearnings by science. But trauma informed trauma is helpful. It's a useful tool. But it's very interesting that the more that we talk about trauma, the more trauma we have. The more that we're investing in science and say, we've got got tools now, we can deal with this, we're getting more trauma, not less. Alright. Well, the point is really about rest. And take my yoke upon you, so you can go to the yoke slide there. Just make sure you know what a yoke is. I'm sure you all do. But like, it's useful to see that. But then go to the one with the cow, the, the oxen in it. I have to tell you, this was really interesting. I'm preparing the sermon. Oh, let's have a visual. image. make sure you know what that looks like. And I'll come back to that. It's something that really almost troubled me when I saw that. Um, to me all you are weary and burden. I will give you rest. The rest here, I want to read something. This is directly out of the Greek. This is so comprehensive. It's a really encouraging rest. It's a comprehensive, yes, this is our hope. And we can, we can achieve this. We can experience this. Not when we die and go to heaven, now. And the culture can experience with this and be drawn by that and yearn for it and have your testimony matter. And they want to know why you have that rest. And they listen to you and you share life with them. You'll preach at them. You love them and encourage them and carry their burdens and lay your life down for them. That's possible now. Properly, anaposal, is a completing process which, intends, which intensifies pause Properly, to give, to experience rest after the needed task is completed. To experience rest after the needed task is completed. What is our needed task? Our needed task is to do God's will. And when we do it, we will have rest. Now, it's easy to say. It, not so easy to discern or do but it's really exciting to look at. So, that rest, that promise of rest is abundant, eternal, transcendent, and delightful. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Again, by the way, who gives us rest? Jesus does. Not even, you know, my wife or my children. Or my family. Or my friends. They're part of God's plan for me to experience that. But rest comes from Jesus. And there's a lot of tools he would use that. Self-care is a tool for Jesus to use that. But it's not the primary font of rest. But take my yoke. its I'm not going to put my yoke on you. You, again, comparative. You take my yoke upon you. I'm there. I'm waiting to do it I want you to take that yoke but you have to take the yoke and you know I, I'll digress because I want to capture this and I don't really know where I am in time and I'm gonna to finish a few things and it'll take about 20 minutes probably but um when Mike and I love Mike I really admire Mike I'm not sure where he is but I, I just I don't mean to make Mike feel and like Mike is a humble guy anyway and he's very confident very capable all those things most of you know that um, can't validate what he's like as a husband don't have a I don't know that. you have to talk to Laura about that But uh, <laughs> I just heard the voice of God that's crazy did you hear it too? my goodness um, that's a question of discernment right there that. Um, and what I just talked about is when Mike went skiing it, if he had decided like, I think I'll go skiing for a few runs and this girl, I'll call her Anastasia and this girl can just hang out down here in the lodge where they're not doing any skiing. That would be skiing unyoked. And he would enjoy it. He'd get pleasure from that, and he'd find a certain form of rest from that. But yoking himself to Jesus Christ on the ski slope, holding his ski board, snowboard, while he's trying to help this when she first time she fell down, she wouldn't even try to get up. Like, look, I'm going to teach you to ski, but I'm not teaching you how to get up. You've got to get up, doggone it. Which, honestly, metaphorically, that's me. I fall down. I don't want to get up. God says, look, I'm going to give you all the grace and power and love I have available to you. But suck it up. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Own my invitation to the promise. Mike put on the yoke by laying down his life to spend all day walking up and down the slope on his boots. Which is even worse. And that's a great example of being yoked. But here's the other thing that struck me is, let's just imagine in this image, this troubled me. And it's like, well, I know what a yoke is. I've seen it in my mind a million times. But when I actually put this, Jesus, like, it make more sense to me. Like, oh, um, come, come to me. Put on the harness. I will sit in the chariot, and I will give you direction with the reins. The king of the universe, the creator of the universe, should sit in a chariot of gold and harness me. He shouldn't be yoked to me as a beast of burden, serving man. This image is not like Jesus, Jesus Christ invites us to do what he's already doing, is pulling the plow. Sir, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom to many, Jesus says. And this is what he talks about on earth. For the balance, until he returns, he's inviting us to take on this yoke and the other thing that troubled me in this sentence, is I thought, it's obscene. It's obscene to think that he would want to yoke with me. Because I know me. And I know my life and everything about it. And I, just, I thought about doing a, 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 an object lesson here. And, and the young people, I think the young people came in here. But I, just, I thought about having vanilla ice cream, which I'm very fond of. Kirkland brand is really good. And, um, and having two bowls. one is pristine and delicious. And the other one, I wanted to take our vacuum cleaner uh, canister that has all the stuff in it, and then dump it on my bowl of ice cream. And then ask, okay, which of these bowls do you want to eat? Because that's not metaphorically too far from what I would look like in my heart. If all my sin was shown on this screen, we'd all be disgusted. And probably true for all of us. And yet he invites us to be yoked to him, the holy God of the universe, creator, son of God. And it's troubling at some level. But then it's like, he loves me. He died for me. And I'm thankful, and I want to be yoked. Let me not resist it. Let me give up being selfish and foolish and short-sighted. And let me embrace it. But it's hard. How do I do that? And that's the next passage. So take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is key. The implosion of the church. Is the failure to follow the model of evangelism that Jesus laid out um, to a large degree over a thousand years or more but particularly recently and most especially recently we were assimilating the culture we're assimilating the tools of the culture and the expectations of the culture instead of leading the culture and we're trying many ways to assimilate that because if we want to keep young people we better be like what young people think is cool and we better pursue those things so I'm an old guy and young people are like hey he's an old guy what's he know about this so I get that And so to be excellent and to be relevant, that's just loving somebody. Now I work with young people. I work with young people in the city for 25 years. And I find it profoundly life-giving to walk with them, to learn from them. I'm an ignorant old white man, to be blunt. And most of the children I work with are black or Latino, mostly black. What an urban and under-resourced and highly stressed and highly traumatized. What do I know? What can I really offer? Everything I've learned about how do I love someone properly in the community I serve, as virtually all of it has come from the children and families I serve because they share their lives with me. That's why I, I hated missing the ski trip because when you're on those trips and the children share their lives with you. All right. I realize there's a ton of other things. Um, and I'm going to have to condense that. Uh, and you will find rest for your souls. Oh, I'm gentle and humble heart. Now, here's the secret to how do we get that rest? And these two words, gentle and humble, you know, they just don't translate in English well at all. And they talk about that, and I'm no expert. But they really imply emptying yourself. Being completely emptied. Do you have a picture of the, uh, the hospital gowns? And I was thinking about what's an image of being emptied? And uh, maybe it'll come up there. Maybe that dropped. Nope, that's not a hospital gown. <laughs> well, you can imagine it. If you want to be humbled and emptied, get stripped. Put on a hospital gown which doesn't even cover you and hardly ever ties and it's in the back and I can't reach it and get a colonoscopy. (laughs) I'm not feeling so proud or excellent or privileged. I'm like, man, that's humbling. I've just been emptied. And the interesting thing, when I left six figures and highly esteemed and a global expert, like we weren't really high maintenance people on our income, on what we did with our income, where we lived and the cars we drive. We drove a car for 15 years till it died and that kind of thing. But it was very interesting. As soon as I lost that privilege, that opportunity, I didn't realize how it had insinuated itself into my identity and how vulnerable I felt like I was no longer rich and powerful. In fact, I was working with children in the city, and I had no competence at all. And I was, like, humbled and incompetent. And I was completely emptied of my ego, my expertise, my strength, my power. Not really because I chose to, really, because I just walked into something ignorant, and and I was emptied. And when I became emptied, there was an opportunity for God to come in. My power is made perfect in your weakness, he told Paul. And so if we want to have rest, we must empty ourselves. And we must be weak. And one of the things I'll mention there is the question of intimacy. Like when you you have just an impersonal church, and I'm not saying you do. I think you had quite the opposite. I heard that, in fact, some of the comments earlier. The less personal, less intimate a church is, the less you can empty yourselves. You can't be vulnerable. You won't be vulnerable. It would be unwise to be vulnerable. But as you come to know people and you trust them and you can share burdens, these 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 are pathways that you have to practice and exercise. But back to the last key word, discipleship, where it says, learn from me. That's the central word. It's possible. You don't get it right away, and there are your miracles and grace, but learn from me. And um, it's, the word, it's the same word as disciples. It comes from the same root. It means to be a learner. And so if we want to have 25-year-olds in this church who are sold out for their faith and dynamic and providing leadership 20 years from now, you have to make disciples when they're 12, when they're five. Uh, you know, there's a million things, and I think I should, I should close up here. Um... Let's look at a couple slides real quick. Can you go back to the pictures of, uh, of the trauma apocalypse? You all know what this is. 12 days ago, we were highly stressed, weary and toiling and burdened because we had global warming bearing down on us and racial and economic inequity that we don't know what to do with. And uh, all kinds of failures in our systems, in our marriages, in our lives, in the complexity—all these things. But at least, thank goodness, we weren't worrying about nuclear poc- apocalypse anymore. That changed real quick. And the reason this is a trauma apocalypse, a revelation, is because I, I listened to the Lithuanian, Lithuanian uh, president talk about, like, we've been telling you for 30 years the Russians would do this, and all you Western Europeans were so smug and said, "Nah, you're paranoid." Like, welcome to the real world. And the real world is, human beings are evil. And globalization, and technology, and science, and mechanisms, and communication, and you know, narratives, they do not eliminate the trauma and the evil. And now we're seeing it. And if we want to navigate these evils, and this evil, now go to the next slide. You know, like, just real quick, I have a picture of my wife at her father's funeral. And this was on the front page of the New York Times this week. And the picture of Monica and her family at her father's casket is identical. When I saw this picture, I went, wow. And I just saw a picture two weeks ago of Monica because they were cleaning out her mom's house. And the litless girl, the litless children, were like this girl, like kind of lost, not sure what's going on. The mom was in a state of complete despair, my mother-in-law. And, but Monica looked like this girl here. That is the face of trauma. She understands what's happening. Not fully, but enough to know that she's been traumatized and her world has been savagely changed and she's innocent. And the beautiful clay vessel that was being shaped by her family and her culture and her peace and her context had just been crushed and misshapen and torn and polluted and wounded permanently, never to change, those wounds, maybe not be a prisoner of them. What's the next slide? This is Wilmington, Delaware, Southbridge. It's hard to imagine that as the Ukraine. And I wouldn't parallel like, oh my gosh, what's happening in Ukraine, people of faith have to say, what do we, what do we make of that? It's a whole other story, but go to the next slide. This safe space, this is inside that building, a gunfight broke out a month ago, oh no, in December. And five bullets came through the walls. We had two kids that already showed up for camp, one of our staff members. And one of the bullets hit that metal cabinet back there by the door, came through the wall and hit that metal cabinet. They didn't know it at the time, but they, they hit the floor, waited for the dust to clear, and then uh, the two little boys had to go to the bathroom. And one boy went in, and when he went in to go to the bathroom, he found a bullet on the floor. So like, if he had gone in that bathroom before the gunfight, he could have been killed right there. And a bullet hole in the wall. The two boys reacted totally different to the trauma. The one boy just freaked out. He wanted to call his mom and his sisters. They lived like five blocks away. They're not going to be troubled by the bullets. But in his mind, the paradigm of safety that he had counted on, the rest that he thought he had had been destroyed. And he has not gone back to school nor back to camp two months later. The other boy went out that night to the taco thing. He was the boy who found the bullet. And he seemed pretty like uh, i got this under control, I know I'm doing it. But he kept retelling the story. And he called my staff member about two weeks ago and said, there's a new bullet hole. So she said, well, show me. And she went in, it was the same bullet hole. But in his fear, in his trauma, his suppression of, I want to be able to control my life, but I don't. He's terrified. He's wounded. So... Um, I'll say this, and, and I want to say, like, you and I, we can't go to Ukraine. We can do something about this. This is not radically different. When you live constantly in fear of your life, and every person who lives in the city wants to get out and does live in fear of their life. And uh, there's a million things I can tell you about that, but that's real. And by the way, you're sure not going to worry about your homework when you just worry about living, surviving, and you can't sleep at night. So what can we do? How can we act? To say the gospel in this church has power. Has power in your community and in that community. Real quickly, Joseph wails when his brother... He finally reveals himself to Joseph in like chapter 47 of Exodus. And he says, I'm your brother Joseph. He wails so loudly to everybody in the palace. They're like, what has happened? And he's going through an existential challenge saying, Will I kill my brothers or will I save them? Joseph was traumatized. How was he traumatized? He was the golden boy, the fair haired boy. He was the favorite. He was raised. To, everybody's cheese will bow down to you. He had every privilege. He had the coat of many colors. He had everything that would be the trappings of rest and effectiveness and power and life and abundance. You know how he was traumatized? Because his father loved Rachel and not Leah. That's family trauma. And the boys born to Leah hated Joseph and sold him into slavery because they were traumatized. And this was their chance to manifest their trauma and get vengeance. And the whole process of Joseph having to be now a broken vessel and be completely changed, but all of it so that God could save his people. And in Exodus 50, they come back again, another interchange. And he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Every broken vessel here today, my broken vessel, every trauma we've had, every trauma in the city, every trauma in Ukraine, is under the power of God to be redeemed. What was intended for evil can be turned for good. And there's a journey, and it's not easy, and you're carrying, but it's the yoke of Jesus to walk that journey. And when we walk it, we will find rest, because He promises that, and I've experienced it. And I invite you to act out of these words and these thoughts. I love this church, and I'm thankful for the privilege to share that, but it's urgent. This church has a unique opportunity to challenge the model of church that you do, to look at discipleship, and not be deceived by narrative over truth. Pursue truth, do not be deceived by narrative. Love one another, invest, carry the cross, walk up and down that slope in your ski boots, when you'd rather go skiing. And the love in that will give you rest. Let's pray real quick. Father God, I thank you for your word. Jesus, I thank you for you. you died on a cross. You carried my sins. You redeemed all my trauma. And even as I walk in a journey, of working it out and understanding and sinning again and getting off track. I can count on your love and your redemption and your forgiveness and your love. But you asked me to come to you. You asked me to put the yoke on and you asked me most of all to empty myself and humble myself and become weak. And that's a cross, dying on a cross in order that we might have life. Help us, help this church, help us individually to discern how do we figure out the cross that we need to bear? How do we carry it with each other? How do we find rest? How do we proclaim that rest in the way we love those around us that's compelling and authentic and enduring and delightful? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rob. Well, today we... Today we get the opportunity to end out with partaking of communion. And in communion, we have the opportunity to remember the sacrifice of what Christ has done. And Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This is my flesh, which I give, uh, which I will give for the life of the world. And whether you're online in the parking lot or in here, I would encourage you to partake of this with us uh, as I simply read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27 and, and prompt you for that. Uh, again, it says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that When the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please partake of that bread or the cracker in remembering that this represents Christ's body. Continuing on verses 25 and 27, it says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you partake of the juice? Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done on the cross. Lord, we thank you that we can enter into right relationship with you. Lord, that you removed our sin, that you removed our shame, that you took our punishment, Lord, and that we can now enter into the rest and into the peace that you have for us. Lord, I thank you so much that I pray that we would be simply your hands and feet. Lord, that this good news that we've experienced, we would be able to take to the world, that we would be able to share with one another, that we would be able to share with our friends and family and co-workers and those that we come into contact. Lord, that this good news wouldn't just stay with us, but Lord, that we would proclaim it to the nations. Lord, I thank you so much again for your work on the cross and how we are made in right standing with you. Lord, would you be with us as we continue the rest of the service, as we finish out in song, and continue with us as we continue this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with us as we sing our final song?
2: of every tongue Come find hope in the love of the Father All creation will bow as one Lift your eyes to the risen Son Jesus, Savior, forever and after Jesus came and died and gave His life for us. Let yeah, our voices rise and sing for all these love. Our fear is over. Come, finding in the, love of the to age, His praises rise. Jesus came and died, came and died for us. Let our voices rise and sing for all things done. Our fear is overcome. Um, Thank you so much, Rob, for sharing your heart with us. I've been doing this Lectio 365 uh, prayer app that you do in the morning and the evening, and today was just a reflection as we head into Lent, but we repeated several times that Jesus has been resurrected. We are resurrected. Hallelujah. And so as we remember this rest and this revelation and this restoration that we get to see, I hope that today you remember that he is risen. We are risen. Hallelujah. Have a great day, and we'll see you again next week. Jesus came and died, gave his life. Let our voices rise to sing for all these good.